And we are live from the Nation of Lies and just outside the Matrix. It is time for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is Backstory. Well, happy 420, Rod. I just wanted to be able to to say that in hopes that Elon Musk picks up on it. it. He seems to like, you know, 420, the weed day. I guess some some people don't need a day to smoke weed, but Elon Musk seems to like 420. When he made the bid for Twitter, he put 420 into the price, and previously he had what what did he do with Tesla? He was right. saying something like he would. He said online years ago that he would uh, sell it for something with 420 in it. And it cost him a huge fine. But he never tires of amusement at 420, wherever he can use it. Have you noticed that? Yeah, he's, he kind of he likes that joke of using the, the 420. Um, as for, I, I don't know how much of a of a, a smoker he is. I know he did it on Joe Rogan, but I don't think I don't think he really partakes like that. I think it's kind of a, a more for other for other people to latch on to. Right. And if he does, he's one of the most productive stone people in the world. And I've known productive stone people. I've mentioned this before. The musician Todd Rundgren. I've hung out with Todd a little bit about 30 years ago. And Todd's a brilliant musician, plays every instrument. And when I was hanging out around Todd, he was chain smoking weed, constantly high, and and was able to program computers and do graphics and be a brilliant musician and never slow him down. So. I got you, man. Yeah, the Beatles were putting, people don't do this anymore. If you look at the Beatles, the era there, when the Beatles were, you know, highly productive, late 60s, they're putting out two to three albums a year. You know, nowadays bands will go two years, three years before putting out an album and no one blinks. But I want to point out that, so happy 420, Rod, a great show and not related to the 420 thing, but a show talking about Assange. There was a hearing this morning in London. We'll be talking about that. And there's an election in France Sunday. And there's this war going on. So we'll be talking about geopolitics, Assange, and French stuff in the second hour, certainly, with Ted Rawl, our guest. And the first hour, Daniel Zarr is joining us, and we have great conversations with Daniel, so looking forward to the show. And of course, we have great conversations with you. Yes, you. Don't get paranoid, it's 420. But no, we do. You, you listening, you can call in and be part of the show. 202-521-1320. Rod? 
I, I believe that, I, I believe yeah. I believe I'm gonna get ahead of you. I believe we're we're talking right now on the backstory. I was gonna say it's four twenty, but I'm sure you can remember the name of the show. Now, there's a lot. I'm I'm gonna put off the Assange stuff, although it's a big deal till we have our guests, uh, Daniel Zar on, and we'll really talk about it. Although. People want to comment on it in phone calls, 202-521-1320. But I want to mention Libs of TikTok. Now, that is a Twitter account. And you're, of course, familiar with Libs of TikTok. Right, Rod? Yeah, of course. And um, I don't know what you're going to say, but I would say Libs of TikTok is... uh... I mean, they only repost what people already have posted, so they're not uh, they're not doing anything um, out of uh, any type of standard that of, of public use. Once you put something out there, the internet can do whatever they want with it. And libs of TikTok just reposts uh, Snapchat and TikTok and other videos, but uh, it's somehow they're, they they're dangerous. They do, and this Twitter account that reposts things that usually concerning transgender issues and usually concerning teachers and transgender issues. And uh, the, the bill in Florida, the, the Roger Santos bill, that apparently was started by a discussion about something that was on libs of TikTok. Now, Tucker's been talking about this the past few nights because the Washington Post is story Glenn Greenwald was all over this. The woman who ran this account was anonymous. And I will I will correct something. I don't think they just publish what liberals are saying on TikTok. They do not do that. The woman tweets them, and in the tweets... She'll make a commentary sometimes. And she's done some appearances, live appearances, and she said, I'll put it like this. If you put up the video with no commentary, or you just say, here's Rod, a preschool teacher, and a video he posted on TikTok, that's no commentary. But she's, she hates some of these people that she posts. And she's not shy about saying that. And she has called some of them predators. Now, I don't think she can control what the comments are. But would you agree with me? You've seen it. She she makes some brief commentary. Yeah, she does put a description and then a comment of whatever her feeling is on these videos. So, yeah, I'll agree with you on that for sure. Um, but like you said, she was anonymous and we have this, uh, this woman who, if you look at her, I thought she was, a, I thought she was in like her early thirties, but supposedly she's, uh, 49, about to be 50 named Taylor Lorenz from Washington post. And, um, so yeah, so it's, it's a crazy thing. And, um, I don't know how far you got into it, Lee, but, uh, the fact that the Germany's this, this German companies all involved with, uh, Archiving people's social medias is—it's kind of—it's kind of—it is a little kind of scary that someone's archiving all of your stuff 
in another country. Yeah, that's explain that because Tucker's talked about that a little bit too. Explain that, Rod. Yeah, yeah. T- Tucker was, uh, you know, Taylor Lorenz. She's not a journalist. She's a uh, she. She comments on. She's a columnist, so she's not a journalist, and um, right, rightfully so. Tucker wanted to know how did how did they find out who is the. Uh, content moderator who owns lives of tiktok who this woman is who comes on because when she comes on tucker she's anonymous he just he doesn't say her name or anything and so pretty much he went down the path of of trying to find how this twitter twitter's involvement and i believe uh there's some company that's involved with uh democrats and that's and that's also a, another subsidiary company it's in Germany. That's almost like a. Uh, it's almost like an intelligence company. I, I would say, um, where they where they're archiving everyone's social media, and so uh, he he pretty much tra- tracked that down because he didn't believe Taylor Lorenz was the one who got all this information. Because I mean, it, it would be pretty hard to, to find out who uh, the libs of TikTok woman is. I mean, she doesn't put her name out there, any pictures, anything, and uh, the fact that they ran down relatives and previous addresses and all this other stuff. Um, just, it, it is a little scary to, to think that, uh, if you just comment on things on social media, that, uh, there's companies out there that, uh, have your information and can easily or will easily put it out there for people to come harass you. Now I will say, I, I, I like the account, but I, I think Tucker and a lot of people on the right, including who he's on the right, Glenn Greenwald, are making too big a deal. We talked about this early in the week when Jason Goodman was on as a co-host. There's such a thing as a limited per, limited purpose public figure. And I think Libs of TikTok is a limited purpose public figure. She, she's obviously got a huge following. And I was watching Stephen Crowder yesterday and he he said, he pointed out that she's one of the most influential people in right-wing media, in conservative media. And I don't think, I've, I, don't, I don't see, you know, maybe I'm, I'm weird. Well, I clearly am weird. But uh, I don't think I think you've got a limited right to be anonymous. What I mean by that is if you're getting, if you're reposting your Tucker appearances, once Tucker starts talking about you on his show, you're in the public domain. In terms of you're a valid topic for discussion. And uh, Sanger was talking about this on his show with Crystal Ball. He was saying he's been talking about her with friends and saying this is an interesting story there because she's a very influential account. So, but the interesting thing about this is Taylor Renz had in the past few weeks a story about, I think it is also fair to talk about Taylor Renz, but the idea of target harassment the idea that she should be anonymous because she doesn't like what people are going to say about her. I'm, I'm iffy on that. And I didn't think it was the biggest deal in the world 
there had been multiple medium asteroids on her. And uh, this is one of the stories I find, like, I don't want her to get harassed. I don't want anyone to get harassed. But on the other hand, once you start down that road, once you, this is why I've never done it in ever, is hide behind an anonymous account name. I've always been my name, Stranahan. And a few years ago, about 30 years ago, uh, when I was doing erotic photography, I was an award-winning erotic photographer in the 90s. And I made a choice to post under my name because I decided that I did not want to have people come back at me and say, oh, who's this anonymous person? And then expose me as though I'm ashamed of it. I'm not. Not ashamed of it. I'm very, I did very good work. And uh, not everyone's cup of tea, but very good work. And I was proud of it. And I never, and the reason I've avoided anonymous names, and a lot of times at Citizen Journalism School, people ask me, should I post an anonymous name? I always say no, because then you become another story when they expose who you are, which it's somewhat difficult, but people have gotten good at this and a variety of ways to figure out who somebody is. People love my mystery. And so I think it's one of those stories that's, I don't think she should be suspended. I actually kind of think it would be better if she posted them without commentary. So if she just said, here's this person and here's, you know, and they say they're a, a preschool teacher or whatever, and then let the video speak for itself. That's what I would suggest. But I don't think she's doing anything wrong. And so we'll go to the phones now. 202-521-1320. Ingrid, what's on your mind? Oh, thanks, Lee. Three different things. First, yesterday you did a fantastic interview with Alex Craner, and you urged people to share it. However, could you tell people where they could find it? Do they have to go to the Sputnik audio to do it? Because you haven't for quite a few days now had any populist TV YouTube recordings of the show. So that's one. And two is. Well, let me take let me take one. I posted that on SoundCloud. And I linked to it on my Twitter feed. I posted just the interview because it was a pre-tape. I had a recording of just the interview and I posted that over to SoundCloud, soundcloud.com where it's up under Alice Craner interview. So I assume if you look for Alice Craner and Stranahan, that's just that interview, just the raw audio of the interview. And so that is up there. And the other thing I'm going to be doing in the next day or so is Posting a transcript of the interview, so it'll be in written form, because I thought it was great too. And uh, I want to make sure it was out there. So, SoundCloud, and 
in a day or two, I'll tell you when I do it. We've almost, we're almost ready to post that transcript. It needs to be edited. But that's the other place it'll be. So that interview is available. Other than that, I don't know what's going on with the Populous TV thing. It's possible we've been banned from live streaming because if you get a certain number of strikes for content, which, and, and we talked about this before, when they give you those strikes, we're a two-hour show. They just say your content violated it, and they never say what content violated it. So I have no idea. But that they may have banned us from live streaming. That's possible. So what was the second point? Well, okay, that's wonderful. And, and thanks, because we really are in an information war, and all of us should be the grunt soldiers sharing this. Um, the second thing is, uh, a, there's also another trial going on with this Sussman person. And uh, according to uh, Poikinen, who's a, an Assange supporter, there's very significant things coming out in the Sussman trial that are not being widely reported. And three, it wouldn't be me if I didn't criticize someone on my own side. Well, hang on, hang on. let me just emphasize that a little bit. There was a recent filing by Durham that apparently revealed in the assessment trial some information that the CIA had ev had evidence that some of the Trump-Russia data that was submitted was man-made. In other words, it didn't come up organically. It was created. And the CIA... Surprise, surprise, didn't report that, but they knew it. They knew it, that this is fake information. So that's significant. But go ahead, Ingrid. Right. You may talk slow, but your brain's working fastly. It's wonderful to have you back. Anyway, um, the third thing is about Daniel Lazar. A week or so ago, he was on with Kiriakou, and... They, he spoke about uh, Putin's, Russia's war crimes as though that were a fact. Now, either he doesn't know the definition about war crimes, or he subscribes to the idea that the invasion was unprovoked and illegal, which I don't agree with in either case. And uh, just leave that there. Well, I, I can ask Daniel about it when he comes on, because... Uh... Uh, and clarify what he means. I know he thinks the invasion was criminal and unjustified on Putin's part because he parenthetically mentions that in a new article he's got that we'll be talking about. He mentions it parenthetically. It's not the point of the article, but he says, and I've heard plenty of people say this, and I don't think the case has been laid out why the invasion, I don't think it's been laid out clearly enough, including by Russia, why this was legal. I think I know it, but I don't think it's been laid out systematically as responding to an objection. Have you seen anyone do that, aside from 
Scott Ritter's made some statements that are uh, about that. But I've not seen Russia lay out the case for being legal. Have you? I haven't, but I also haven't looked for it. So I would not be surprised if it was in some speech or some statement. But no, I haven't seen it other than from Scott Ritter, who has laid it out very, very well. No, and and that's and by the way, it's not criticism. I have a feeling Russia's feeling is that if they 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 don't need to justify it. And it's true. When has the United States ever justified the illegal war activities that it conducts all the time? Russia feels like it's justified, and they don't need to explain it or defend themselves. I think that I—that's my guess. And they have bigger fish to fry, like the actual war, which, by the way, is wrapping up in Mariupol. It's down to almost—they're all in that giant. Uh, Mine, World War II, Cold War era, bomb shelter. It's not World War II. It's World Cold War era bomb shelter. And uh, it's down to fighting Patrick Lancaster, I pointed out before. He does fantastic videos. And he's really gutsy. I saw some videos he's doing in the past day or two where he's on the battlefield in Mariupol and he's right behind a Chechen guy who's fighting, who's shooting and getting shot at. And that means he's Patrick Lancaster was, and whoever's running camera is standing behind a guy who's getting shot at. But that operation is mopping up as Mark Svoboda pointed out and uh, about to be over. And they're still calling them defenders. Every time I see that, it makes me nuts because they're not defenders. The people in Mariupol, the Nazis, the nationalists who are still fighting and who are still fighting in part because Zelensky has issued an order that if you surrender, you can be shot on sight. So he's keeping people from surrendering. And uh, the mopping up operation, it's getting down to the point they've offered, Russia's offered them multiple chances to surrender. And they've extended it and extended it. And now it's getting down to it. But the Mariupol operation is significant. And as Mark Sabota said, it was a great appearance by Mark yesterday, too. As he's pointed out, that is a symbolic victory. It's it's important. It's sort of important strategically because of where Mariupol is located close to the Black Sea and so on. But mainly it's significant because it was a Nazi nationalist stronghold. 
And there's a lot of mercenaries there, apparently. So that's about to be over. But anyway, Ingrid, anything else? That's it. <laughs> okay, great call, Ingrid. Thanks for the call. Great call. And all Daniel Daniels are, again, this is a free speech zone. And Daniels are, we have people on who don't approve of Russia's military operation slash invasion. I'll, you know, people make a big deal out of that. Russia's not calling invasion. Well, we still don't call the Korean War. We refer to it as the Korean conflict all through, throughout, all throughout MASH. And so, again, it's hypocrisy because nations often refer to things in different ways. And Mark pointed out yesterday that it may escalate into what they're calling officially war. But Command Central, do we have Daniel on? Okay, so I'm gonna go to a break now. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk to Daniel Czar. We'll ask him a question about what he thinks about the invasion and to clarify a statement he made on political misfits. Let's take a break here on The Backstory. on the backstory, vital listening and these times. 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Our next guest, Daniel Czar, is a frequent guest and a favorite of ours. He writes about geopolitics. At, it's Daniel's weeklyworker.com. Weeklyworker.co.uk. Okay, thanks for correcting me. Uh, I, I, I get the front part right, but if you don't get the back part right, it's useless. So, right. Daniel, welcome to the show. It's great to talk to you again. So, Thank you. Did you hear the last call at all? No. Okay, Ingrid called from D.C., and she said she heard you on with, with Political Misfits and John Kiriakou, and you referred to uh, Russia's war crimes. And what is your position on this? And it's, you know, we love having you in the show, and it's a free speech show. So I'm not, not hoping to put you in a defensive position, but we, I just like, like the, we got the call, and I want you to be able to clarify your position in your own words. So go ahead. I, I mean, I don't, I, I, with all due respect to your caller, uh, I don't believe I ever used a phrase like that, and I have never really addressed that question. Uh, I'm not aware of any war crimes Russia has committed uh, other than invading a neighboring country, but um, I've never used that accusation against Russia, I don't believe. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. Are you familiar with, I, I talked about this guy yesterday, and most people, I would assume they'd never heard of him at all, but you're an erudite, educated individual. 
Are you familiar with John Paul Himka? Yes. He is an historian, right? Yes. He's a Canadian historian. Yes. Right. Exactly. And he's not bad, if I recall. No, he's very good. He's he's very good. And he's a relative of Christina Freeland's, the uh-huh. vice prime minister of Canada. But where she's in denial about the Ukrainian Nazi past, Himka has written extensively about the Ukrainians' role in the Holocaust and has taken a lot of flack for it. But he's extremely well-documented. And he's talked about how bothered he is that Ukrainians are in denial about Ukraine's role in the Holocaust. But I was watching a video of him, and he's completely honest about the the role of the Ukraine in in the Holocaust and its Nazi connections, and he documents it. But he was talking about the war with somebody. I saw a video on YouTube, and he was saying he thinks the war is criminal on Russia's part. Now, I I'm one of those people where I don't hold that opinion. I don't agree with it, but it's a valid position to take. And when I hear him take it, I don't think it's coming from a place of bias. I think that's his opinion based on things. And I was talking earlier, Scott Ritter's laid out the case why it's not illegal. But Russia, I don't think, has laid it out specifically because they're not trying to engage in a public relations battle. They're trying to conduct a war. But people forget that Vladimir Putin's a lawyer. And so I'm sure he looked into, and and by the way, I'm not justifying, I'm not saying it is legal, but because he's a lawyer, I'm sure he's got a good argument in the back of his head why this is legal. What is your take on that, on whether the invasion or military operation is legal? Well, is it legal? I, I, I mean, I, I assume it's not, but nonetheless, one could also argue that, you know, that, that, that NATO is engaging in legal activities and fomenting sedition and unrest and subversion of the Ukraine in a way which directly threatens Russia. So if you want to argue that, then yes, that would provide a legal justification for the, for the invasion. I mean, I don't support the invasion. I think it's a disaster. It was a really bad move. I think that, that Putin previously had been very smart, very cagey, but I think this is a blunder of the first, you know, the greatest proportions. What was it? Uh, uh, who was the um, Talleyrand? was a famous French uh, statesman who says uh, it's worse than a crime. It's a blunder. Uh, and so I think that he, I think this is really we'll going out in history as a really a, a great blunder. Putin can't win this. Uh, he'll only find him find Russia will only wind up more besieged than ever by NATO. Uh, I think it was a big mistake. But I do believe that in in the balance, the greater part of the responsibility lies with NATO, which has 
undoubtedly, you know, it's, it's, it's conducted this drive to the east. It's, you know, it's trying clearly trying to surround uh, uh, um, Russia. Uh, it's behaved in a highly provocative manner. Uh, the, the 2014 U.S.-backed coup d'etat was an attempt to, to you know, to, uh, to sort of bring the anti-Russian threat right up to, you know, to Moscow's doorstep. Um, so I believe the lion's share of blame lies with, uh, with the U.S. and NATO, unquestionably. And let me ask you this. You say it's a blunder. I think the biggest blunder of the entire event has been the U.S. miscalculation on the economic harm that they would cause to Russia through sanctions. Sanctions have worked out. The ruble has been up lately, and the Russian stock market was up. I believe as of yesterday, I I checked on it, it was up. Is the biggest miscalculation has been the U.S. thought that they could destroy Russia through economic sanctions. Do you, what's your take on that? Yeah, yeah, I think there's a sort of a, a, a really interesting symmetry here. I mean, uh, I mean, Putin thought. Uh, his troops would just march right into, right into Kiev. You know, they'd swoop in, they would arrest Zelensky, and their troops would hold a victory parade, you know, down uh, down the, the main street of Kiev, you know, in their dress uniforms, and, and, and you know, and, and the people of Kiev would, would throw flowers on, uh, on them. And so he clearly, he blundered, clearly he miscalculated. But the, but the, the, the Western economic campaign is a blunder of equal proportions. I mean, because uh, because the, the 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 Russian economy has not collapsed. The uh, the the ruble has bounced back. It's even may have even recovered a bit of ground from the uh, from you know prior to February twenty fourth. Uh, the the Russian economy is uh, is holding up, uh, and the the economic consequences for the West are just devastating. Uh, we don't know, you know, all eyes are on France at this moment, but, you know, but, uh, but if, if, if Marine Le Pen even does fairly well, it'll put, it'll put the, a, a profound scare into the French establishment. And if she does well, if she wins, it'll be cause of inflation, inflation that has been exacerbated by the, uh, this, this crazy, unnecessary war. And I think also that the the economic consequences, one of them is it's been a final separation of Russia from the U.S.-led economic system. In other words, they, they're asking for and getting payment in rubles from much of the world for, uh, for oil and gas. And and they have maintained a largely self-sufficient economy with the help of some trading partners like China and India. And I think it's significant that China, who met with Putin during Xi met with Putin during the Olympics before the invasion and supported him them. And then a few weeks ago, there was another meeting Xi met with Biden and came out of that meeting with a statement strongly backing Russia. 
And I think it also has made a big difference whereas the final separation of China and Russia it's and the significance of this is important uh, from the US and the Western economic system. They canceled SWIFT. It didn't phase Russia one bit. And they tried to destroy their currency, and they didn't. And they made it more strong. Do you think this signals the end, because of those factors, of U.S. Western dominance as a global hegemon and sparks a new era with Russia and China dominance? Um, yes to the first, don't know to the second. I mean, yeah, I think that the, I think that the great neoliberal, you know, utopia of, uh, of 1989 to, to 2022, early 2022 was at an end. I mean, globalization, U.S. dominance of the uh, financial markets, SWIFT, the U.S. controlled SWIFT, you know, essentially like, you know, mediating every financial tra transaction on Earth. That is finished. Um, uh, but as to whether the whole thing just sort of just collapses and just sort of, you know, turns into financial rubble or whether Russia and China are, are, are able to sort of merge out of this thing in better shape uh, and take charge of at least part of the global economy, that waits to be seen. I'm not sure. I think I think China is weakening as well, frankly. I think China is uh, uh, is uh, heading into financial turbulence also. Ironically, I think that Russia is in fairly good shape because it's a it's a commodity exporting country, and its commodities, uh, mainly you know wheat, fertilizer, uh, certain kinds of uh, of metals and oil, are all really strong. And so, therefore, Russia actually is benefiting. So you know, it's like you know, please sanction us some more because the more sanctions the uh, the U.S. lays on. Uh, the more you know, the more these 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 uh, these commodities rise in price, and and the and the the more the Russian economy strengthens. So I think that Russia actually is coming through this in a lot better shape than obviously all the so-called experts in the West uh, thought it would. Now, now, Daniel, uh, let me ask you a question that's basic, but I, I think there's some confusion on it. And I am personally confused by it sometimes. You refer to this as a neoliberal uh, dream that they've had for the past several decades. And what it's as basic as you can get. What do you see as the distinction between neoconservatism and neoliberalism? I basically use words interchangeably. But what do you see the differences between neoliberalism and neoconservatism. They're close, aren't they? Well, they, they're, they often overlap, but they're actually two very different concepts. I mean, neoconservatism really means hawks. Uh, and, and, and neocons were originally Democrats. They were followers of Scoop Jackson. Uh, you know, many of them were ex-Marxists ex who followed Scoop Jackson. I remember Scoop Jackson was the senator from Boeing uh, back in the 70s who uh, turned into a hawk. Uh, he attracted a lot of, uh, of formerly left-wing intellectuals, and they started uh, uh, putting together a very 
a kind of a very tightly knit pro-war hawkish movement. Um, neoliberals are, that means free marketeers, liberal in the classic European sense. It doesn't mean leftist the way it does in the United States. It means people who advocate liberal, liberalized markets, free markets. So neoliberals are people who call for a return to free markets. So somebody is free market uh, economics. And it means, you know, it means like, you know, free trade, uh, uh, globalization, privatization, uh, smashing labor unions, doing at least, you know, reducing welfare, if not eliminating it, reducing public services, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then, you know, and then like pursuing central bank policies, which, which juice the financial markets. So since like since 2008, we've seen the financial markets go through, through the roof while conditions for everyone else have either remained stagnant or actually declined. And going back to the 90s, would you agree that neoliberal icons were Bill Clinton and people like Tony Blair in the UK? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, but and, and it's amazing. Yeah. So, but it's, so what it is really what's really interesting is how is how free markets uh, uh, sort of went hand in hand with with war, war, war. I mean, I mean, Bill Clinton turned into a into a major hawk. He, he appointed a, a Madeleine Albright as the secretary of state in, the, in his second term. And she was a monster. And the and the bombing of Serbia in 1999 was one of the really great crimes, kind of a forerunner of what we're seeing today, you know. And then and then of course when you know when after 9/11 when the uh, when when uh, when when um, W you know sort of you know pushed the invasion of uh, of Iraq, all the Clintonites hopped on board, led by Hillary herself. So you know so. So yeah, so I mean, so the reason the reason that people confuse the word neoliberal and neoconservative is that there's so much overlap; they seem to go hand in hand, particularly in foreign policy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and then, you know, and the neocons originally were actually were actually sort of liberal in domestic policy. I mean, if you take a poll of neocons, you know, back in the in the seventies and eighties, you know, most of them would support abortion abortion rights. And uh, and Hillary, of course, you know, is a is a feminist, uh, claims to believe, you know, in racial equality. Certainly, certainly believes in affirmative action. Uh, certainly supports a liberal interpret interpretation of the uh, of the U.S. Constitution. So she is kind of liberal to a degree on the domestic front, but she's a raging hawk. I mean, a scary Doctor Strange Lovett uh, on the foreign foreign policy. Yeah, right. And now, now this takes us to something of your new article over at weeklyworker.co.uk, which is talking about how the Democrats have become the war party. Right. What's your premise of the article? Yeah, that, that's that's the that's the, the crucial development over the last you know last ten years. Uh, certainly since the rise of Trump. I mean, uh, in you know when Trump declared in, in June 2015 for the presidency. I mean, I mean, Trump is a is an isolationist of some sort, uh, and he's you know he was he kind of hostile to NATO. I mean, I think Trump is nuts, but he's hostile to NATO. He was kind of like you know anti empire, uh, and um, and he was uh, he was favored a rapprochement with uh, with Russia, 
you know, and um, and the and the Democrats responded by turning themselves into the war party. I mean, you know, you know, fiercely anti-Russian, you know, and we saw this this craziness during and during Russiagate. You know, where 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 Putin was like something out of the protocols of the elders of Zion, and he was sitting in his in his office in the Kremlin pushing buttons and discord. And riots would break out all over the United States, you know, and the Russians, you know, were accused of personally installing Trump in the Oval Office. That was ridiculous. And Russiagate was uh, was an absurdity from top to bottom. I mean, all they found was forty four thousand dollars worth of Facebook ads. You know, half of them weren't even political and the other half were so ridiculous you know, a picture of Bernie Sanders in a in a in a speedo bathing suit, or you know, or Hillary and 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 the devil arm wrestling. You know that they they didn't persuade they couldn't have persuaded a single person. You know, yet on that one minor fact, and 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 the idiot Robert Mueller never succeeded in in, in connecting those ads with the Kremlin in any case. But you know, but that those that one minor ad buy forty four thousand dollars, completely insignificant, was turned into a political scandal by the the Democrats and the pro democratic mass media. So you remember Lee? It it, it dominated the 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 uh, the, the news cycle twenty four seven for three or four years straight, right? I mean, that's all you do. Turned on the TV. That's all you got was some CNN talking head, you know, claiming that the walls are, are, are closing in. You know, you know, uh, Trump's Russian connections are going to bring him down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was all a fantastic lie. And then when, when Biden came to office, Biden saw his mission, this, this doddering, ridiculous, you know, 80-year-old, figured that his mission was somehow to wreak vengeance on Russia for all the supposed horrors it had, the Democrats said it had committed. Uh, it, was, it was a fever dream. It was insane. And it was the Democrats, not the Republicans, the Democrats. And we should point out that part of this ties into today's headlines, because Julian Assange was at a hearing in London, and part of Russiagate was demonizing Julian Assange. And the Democrats, prior to the election, the defeat of Hillary Clinton in 2016, I think a lot of people on the left, by the, I'm just speaking broadly on the left, Democrats, a lot of Democrats liked and had sympathy for Julian Assange. One thing I noticed was Russiagate and the Democratic PR machine slammed the door shut on Democrat support for Julian Assange. Is that right? Totally. I mean, first of all, like, you know, like uh, Biden, Biden famously called Assange a, a high tech terrorist. I mean, what a sick, stupid statement that was. Um, but but Mueller and and anyone who caught his, you know, his testimony in July 2019 knows what a a doddering fool he was. But Mueller essentially made the case that the Russians stole the emails from the DNC commu uh, computers, 
passed them on to WikiLeaks, and WikiLeaks, as a dutiful Russian stooge, then published them with the uh, with a sole purpose of a uh, of electing Donald Trump and destroying American democracy. Um, and the chronology and the logic that Mueller put forth. I mean, even then, and the the entire press received the Mueller report like it was the you know the it was like you know the uh, uh, the, the New Testament. You know, it was like, no, this was like St. Saint Mueller, St. Saint Robert, you know, telling us, bringing us the gospel. But if you looked at his report really carefully, it was full of holes, holes all over the place. And the chronology that he laid out with the supposed transfer of this supposedly Russian stolen data to WikiLeaks never made any mistakes, never made any sense. Uh, WikiLeaks is was is known for its fastidious uh, curatorship of the documents it receives. Um, they have never been caught passing on a a, a false or phony document. Um, they 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 go over the stuff really carefully to make sure it's 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 genuine that they aren't aren't being fed phony information. Uh, they're very careful, almost to a fault. The Mueller chronology that he laid out in his report had WikiLeaks being delivered this cache of 20,000 emails just four to eight days prior to publication. And anybody who knows WikiLeaks knows that that would have taken them months to verify that, that, that data. So, I mean, Assange himself insisted over and over again that his source was not a state actor. And six weeks earlier, he had said, we have a big release coming. That was, that was before he was ever contacted by the Russians or contacted by the, uh, the Russian cutout named, um, I forgot what his name was anyway. But, uh, but clearly the data that he Mr. released Q. in, pardon me? Gustafur too, is that who you mean? Gustafur too, yeah. That that uh, that 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 clearly the what he referred to in early June, I think it was June twelfth, two thousand sixteen, uh, the forthcoming you know uh, disclosure was what was actually disclosed in uh, in late July, if I'm correct, and and that June twelfth announcement was well before he was ever contacted by Guccifer, according to the data that that Mueller laid out in his report. So Mueller's chronology never made any sense. Uh, 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 Assange's insistence that he was that, that he was not approached by a state actor uh, holds up under very close and careful scrutiny. And Assange, by the way, has a hundred percent record for honesty. I mean, I, everyone who works with Julian Assange knows that he's a, he can be a very difficult, uh, exacting guy, but he is honest, uh, rigorously honest. And, and when he says his source was not a state actor, I think that statement holds up very well. Now, did you pay any attention to the hearing for Julian Assange this morning in London? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's very sad. So, so talk about it, people who didn't follow it. Talk about what happened. Well, essentially, a judge a judge ruled in favor of his extradition to the U.S. 
to stand trial for uh, for espionage. Uh, and, and then the guy is in, is in bad health. Uh, he's uh, he he's he's there's a certain a question of mental deterioration. I mean, he's really he's really suffering physically and mentally from his treatment. You know, it reminds me of like, you know one of these dissidents who the uh, the Soviets used to clap into insane asylums uh, back in the seventies. You know, they'd come out you know being fed you know strung out in Thorazine, and their and their their mental faculties were clearly damaged. Uh, by the ordeal, and certainly Assange seems to be going through a similar process. Uh, so, I mean, Assange still has a few more appeal routes left, uh, but uh, it looks like he is on his way to extradition uh, to the U.S., where he will be tried for espionage, uh, which uh, is a capital offense. Uh, the, I think the Americans have promised he won't be executed, but uh, if he is convicted, he will spend the rest of his life in prison. And effectively executed because, you you know, if you're going to keep a man who's had, and again, he's had many strokes, and Belmarsh prison that he's in, I've been out there, not inside, luckily, but it's like a big medieval dungeon. It's very thick walls and supposed to be very drafty. And uh, that's got to be a, a torturous place to be in, and with some of the problems he's had, uh, and and it's safe to say that if he is he's brought to U.S., which is what the ruling was, and he's tried in the Eastern District of Virginia, he will be found guilty. Is that is that a fair bet? Um. Well, I, I, I hate to I hate to to rule the jury system out because you know it's I mean juries sometimes do do strange things and sometimes they they rebel uh, like this like in this uh, this Michigan Michigan terrorist case uh, so I, I wouldn't want to rule out an acquittal but you know but he'll certainly has a good chance of going to prison for the rest rest of his life. No, you know we had John Kiriakou on here and I ask name a case in the Eastern District, where there's been one of those strange things where the jury system has prevailed. I, John has argued, and he knows better than I do, that it never happens, not a single case. So, so the, I don't want to be a bummer. If that's what John says, John knows better than, than I do as well. So therefore, I, I'd go with his judgment. Yeah, and again, I, I don't want to be a bummer, but I want to be realistic about this. Daniel, once again, tell people where they can find your latest article and all your wor- great work at weeklyworker.co.uk. That's correct. So the Weekly Worker is an excellent, in my opinion, uh, socialist newspaper based in London. Uh, it's very widely read in the UK. It should be more widely read here in the US. Uh, very intelligent, uh, very smart. Uh, um, and uh, and I think it's, it takes a lot of of uh, uh, a lot of um, very important, very uh, uh, necessary stances in today's crazy political world. Well, very intelligent and very smart could be a self-description too. Daniel, <laughs> it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Great, great conversation. Thanks a lot. Let's take a break and when we come back, well, the second hour of today's episode of The Backstory.
And we're back live from the Empire of Lies. And just outside the matrix, it's time for the second hour of the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. I was enjoying talking to Daniel Zarr. Uh, great intelligent conversation. Again, this is a free speech zone. So no one is required to agree, and it wouldn't be possible, I don't think. I, I have opinions that very few people share, because even when I get into the weeds of things, sometimes I disagree with people who I largely agree with, and based on the research I've done. But great conversation with Daniel. And similarly, coming up this hour, we got Ted Rawl joining us. And I always love talking to Ted. And Ted is a dual citizen in France. And so he can talk about the election. Not looking good for Le Pen at this point. She's 10 points behind in the current polls to Macron. So it looks like Macron will win. And he won't win by as big a margin as he won last time around. But, you know, like they say about nuclear war and horseshoes, you know, close doesn't cut it. Uh, And so we're taking your calls, 202-1320, on the backstory. Hey, Lee. And by the way, yeah, yes. I just wanted to follow up on, we were talking about that Taylor Lorenz thing. You know, I had put out a tweet when the, uh, you know, when Russia's began their military operation and the Klitschko brothers, one of them was the mayor of uh, Kiev. And I had one of my tweets reported on by somebody from Germany as well. So when Tucker put out that video yesterday, it would just kind of signal to me that, that, that you know, this isn't going on for a while and especially when this, when the war happened, you started seeing more and more social media accounts being taken down. So I believe that this company in Germany is heavily involved. Yeah, and that's why I started with the help of uh, Danny, my fiance. I started a mailing list, and I'm putting it up. People can sign up for the mailing list on Twitter, and I'm doing it as a defense, partially against my account. It still survived, but I try to be smart about this stuff. Here's one Here's one thing I would say is good, solid advice for life. Don't say anything that could be perceived as a threat against anybody. Would you agree with that, Rod? Yeah, no, I definitely would agree with that. You got you to gotta be careful. I, you know, I, I also adhere to that because I, I think about something, but I'm like, you know what? How would this be perceived? Will they say, oh, he's threatening somebody or he's uh, saying something uh, against trans or, or, or homophobic or, you know, something, you know, obviously if I can state my case and that's based on facts and I'll definitely put it out there. I'm not afraid to say, but as far as social media and how they're taking things out of context and uh, coming after people, you got to be just to just think a little bit before you say something online. And and I, that that advice can get you so far, but you anyone can slip up, and you can say something that's not a threat that will be taken out of context as a threat, 
and then you're done for because they will remove you for making threats. So don't say anything that could be perceived as a threat. Yeah, I, I had I had to think about that because uh, you know, I, or I don't I don't know if you had known, but I, almost fifty people were shot over Easter weekend in Philadelphia. And then we had Larry, I, I was going to get the um, the audio, maybe we'll have it for tomorrow. You know what Larry Krasner came out and said, uh, Soros back district attorney. You know what he came out and said the next day, Lee. He said there needs to be a, a program for bicycles for kids and bicycle mechanics to help them. So they can get out of uh, doing crime and stuff like that. This is this is actually what he said. I'll play the clip tomorrow. This is what a crazy, a crazed person would come out and say after fifty people were shot that we need to get invest more in bicycles. Now, Tarif is online. We'll get to him in one second. But let me say something about that. Not about the bicycles. That, although that's nuts. That's Krasner. I talked about how MSNBC analysts. Malcolm Nance has gone over and he's fighting with the Ukrainian forces. He's literally a combatant. Right, Rod? You've seen that, right? Yeah, and I wanted to say something on Twitter about what should happen to Malcolm for, for going out there and you know right. portraying himself. But I was like, you know what? Let me not, <laughs> let me not say what. No, I've done exactly the same thing. No, I know what you're talking about because on on one and, and Malcolm Nance is also a person tying this in who said horrible stuff about Julian Assange and taunted him in jail. So were something happened to Malcolm Nance, I would feel very little sympathy. But even saying that, you know what I mean? I don't even want to say that because it might be perceived as a threat against him. And I also think it's bad karma to sort of, you know, wish for harm to come to someone. But among the things I'm upset about in life, if Malcolm Nance were to get what befalls many combatants in war, I wouldn't be crying. You agree with that, Rod? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely, I definitely agree with that. You know, when I saw that, uh, when I saw him in that uh, military outfit, and then you, I know you saw the video of him when the there's strikes happening, and he's like, he's trying to be like uh, Tom Cruise, a Mission Impossible, and located just by the ear, and you know all this other crazy stuff. He, you know, he's just a clown, and he said, like you said, he taunted Julian Assange. He's also, uh, he's an imposter as well. He he makes him out to be something that he's not. Yes, and we'll see how that works out. And let me just say, justice has many forms. And so if you go over to be a combatant, I'll put it like this. I support Russia. I am in favor of Putin's position on this conflict. There's no way I'm going over to fight for Russia. You follow me? I'm not going to become a combatant. Would you, Rod? You're in better shape. You don't have the health problems. <laughs> Would you go? Over, no, no. Right. You know what I'm saying. You don't do that. And you no, don't. You don't yeah, exactly. You don't. You don't. Yeah. It's, it'd be like it'd be like somebody saying, you know, let's say Mexico declared war on U.S. and like, you know what? I'm going to join the Mexican forces. It'd be like pretty much like that. 
Right. Or, or I think a more apt analogy, although the best apt is if pick two random countries, why I'll put it like this. If France were in a conflict with Spain, or let me say this, India, Pakistan, because they're countries that are constantly in conflict. If you went over and fought on the Pakistan side and you're not Pakistani, Malcolm Nance, I believe, I'm just guessing, he's not Ukrainian. He has no Ukrainian blood. He doesn't look Slavic. Am I is that racist? Uh, to some, that probably would be racist in you know present day. But no, obviously he's a black man over in Ukraine, who in a in a in a matter of fact he's uh, representing that he's fighting with the the Nazis, the Azovs, and the Banderites, and all these kinds. And I think one of the things is by somebody who's supposedly a journalist, too, or an author, if he's sitting around and he hears some of his comrades say something Nazi-like, do you think he would report that? Do you, you know, if he heard a couple of his buddies say, like they have said, we got to kill some of these Muscovites and Jews, which they have said, they say that stuff publicly. Do you think if the guy sitting next to Malcolm Nance in a trench, the Ukrainian said, I hate Moscovites and Jews. Do you think Malcolm Nance would report that? No, absolutely not. And then I also saw, I mean, I, I can't, uh, I'm not, I don't know how credible it is, but I, I'm not saying it's out the realm of possibility, but they said uh, that, that uh, some of the Africans that were in Ukraine, that they were used to being called, you know, uh, racial slurs out there in, 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 in part, certain parts of Ukraine. So, I, you know, I'd also understand that, would like to know if Malcolm Nance, Malcolm Nance heard that, would he even report that with if he was uh, called a, a racial slur? He wouldn't report it either. So if it was anti-Semitic or anything like that, he wouldn't report it. Even if it was against him and other black people, he wouldn't report it. He's, he's, he's all about the check. And the other thing I'll just mention quickly before we get to Dreve, there's no word, last I checked, there's still no word from Gonzalo Lira, correct, Rod? I have I have been seeing on Twitter that Scott Ritter is actually confirming that he was tortured and killed. So that's yeah. that's what that's what I've been seeing. But we haven't seen either a report from him live or a body. But I've heard those reports too. And again, not to be a bummer, but that's the reality. And that is a war crime. Gonzalo Lira was not a combatant. He was not taking up arms. He was a guy who talked about what his experience and opinions were. But let me say this. It, it's also stories coming out that some of the Nazis who've taken credit, some of the Ukrainian Nazis have taken credit for capturing Gonzalo Lira. Did you see the report that they were trained by Canada. Yeah, I did see that, and then I saw there were there were people. I know one of them is a uh, well. I thought I thought it was a woman, but it's a transgender person who's over there who was actively seeking the capture of Gonzalo Lira uh, a couple of days before he was um, 
the last time we heard from him, which, which was April 15th. So they, you know, they were actively looking for him because he was reporting uh, factual news on, on the ground news. And, you know, unfortunately, um, ho- hopefully it's wrong. Maybe, maybe, we, but uh, you know, if most, you know, it's been a while going what, about six days now, uh, you know, things aren't looking good. So uh, I believe you probably, you know, the reports probably are true. And, 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 and right, we haven't heard from him. And so there's no good news. And we're just sort of waiting for the final confirmation of the bad news. But no good news is no good news in this case. And if Gonzalo Lira is a martyr for citizen journalism and the right tells the truth, I hope it makes uh, what I'm going to be really disgusted by is the way the media, if they cover the story at all, will portray this. Because I know how they're going to portray it. They're going to call him, he's a conspiracy theorist. And the mainstream media will cast their lot with saying, let's say, let's say it's absolutely true he was a conspiracy theorist. Does that mean he deserves to be tortured and killed? If he was a, a wacky conspiracy theorist who's wrong about everything, does he have the right to be wrong about everything without being tortured and killed? And Chile needs to make a big deal of this. The United States needs to make a big deal of this, but they won't. And it's disgusting. Let's go to Sharif. 202-521-1320. Sharif, what is on your mind? Thank you, Whitey. Thank you for taking my call. I have three comments before I get to them. Uh, first, uh, I'd like to say free journal science is important to get them out there to free them. And Gonzalo Lira, the Avzal Battalion, if they did do something like kill him or whatever, they're stupid. They could have held him to transfer him to, to have a trade with the uh, Russians to get some back, some of their people. But that just goes to show you how stupid the Avzal Battalion is. I'm going to get to my first comment. Um, Okay, the situation with uh, uh, Biden with the laptop and all that. I mean, I think what he could do is point and join the signs, and what that could do that can give leverage on his side, knowing that once um, and the, the laptop could be being used to push him more and more into confronting Russia, right? But he's going to be out of the uh, office anyway come January the 20th because once the Republicans take over, they're going to use the laptop. The Hunter Biden laptop against him, so I think it's best for him to put Julian Assange to have some leverage against the bombers, the Clintons, the Bushes, the Cheneys, and some people in Congress and the Senate. That's that's my opinion. You know what I'm saying? Because they're already out to get him anyway to uh, ruin him, which is you know the, the laptop is from hell. <laughs> my second comment is dealing with um, Ukraine. Well, 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 Trey. Let me say, a friend of mine had a suggestion that Russia. Since they're talking about Medvedchuk trading him for these, since trading him for prisoners, and these two British mercenaries have come out and said, please, Boris Johnson, do this. No word of that yet. But a friend of mine suggested that Russia offer Julian Assange freedom. They offer some Ukrainian prisoner of war and trade for Assange's freedom. It's a wacky idea, but but my friend, I think, had a good point. 
that that if they're going to trade hostages, that certainly that would apply to Assange. So I just want to make that point. But go ahead, Sharif. Oh, I understand. I hear you. My second comment is, with all these billions of dollars that Ukrainians borrowing from NATO, I mean, from European countries and the United States, they don't have really collateral anymore to put up to pay back those loans that they're getting from uh, Europe and the United States because the southern port in, of Ukraine, the eastern port of Ukraine, is in Russian control. The southern port is your industri uh, industry ports, your iron mills, and your they're building turbines and stuff like that in the southern ports. In the eastern port, that's your agriculture. Ukraine is number two in the world, dealing with grain production and things of that nature. And now it's in the Russian hands, so they can't use that for collateral. The Russians have that now. Uh, just think about that, everyone. Uh, you know, Russian, <laughs> Russian can control that, you know what I'm saying? Might be a good thing. But third comment is uh, once those troops in Donbass give up or be slaughtered, by the Russian artillery and aircraft striking them, the SU-234s and 24s hitting them. And once people start seeing tens of thousands of people surrendering a day, then that's going to send sideways throughout Europe and also the U.S., especially the Biden administration. That's to put more pressure on Biden because, and also the media, because all this time he was lying that, oh, Ukraine is knocking out Russian tanks and um, they're doing this and doing that, but where's Russia? Um, you know, destroyed them 60 to 100,000 troops in eastern Ukraine, a lot of things are going to change politically. You know, a lot of things are going to change. And you, you know, hopefully the U.S. won't step into Ukraine and cause World War Three just to save face. So thank you, Ali, for taking my call. Thank you, Rob. Great call, Tree, as usual. Thanks so much for that. You know, one thing I saw happening is that the, while NATO is trying to send some weapons over to Ukraine, uh, Russia actually took down that shipment of weapons. So that's one factor, because one of the things that's obviously happened, but that's not being admitted by NATO, is that Ukraine has blown a ton of anti-tank missiles. In fact, one-third of our reserves, and I've heard half of the British supply of anti-tank missiles, and have and they're sending more, and it's not going to go any better. Ukraine has lost this, and in Mariupol they've lost it. You could send Ukraine anything; they have no ability to conduct an air war, and Russia does. So I think that is a crazy thing on NATO's part, and. Quite frankly, it's a provocative, warlike action on the part of NATO, following a long line of Ukrainian uh, support through weapons that is warlike, supplying Ukraine. Russia's noticing this. Russia's aware of that. So NATO's effectively waged war on Russia by supplying Ukraine, and for not. That's the point. Since they're not going to win, the point of giving them weapons is only to sustain the amount of casualties Ukraine takes. But 
Let's go 202-521-1320. Let's go to our friend Brave in Atlanta. Brave, what's on your mind? How's it going, Lee? Uh, I got two points I wanted to raise, but first I, I have to say I, I do not believe in no way, form, shape, or fashion that um, Nance is over there for real. I mean, yeah, he, he's probably in the Ukraine area, but I just find it hard to believe that that guy who is a total phony, it would actually be in the war zone fighting and, and, and shoot. No way, no way. I, I don't care if someone posts a uh, video of him surfing on top of a Russian tank that's exploding from rocket fire. I still would not believe it. Uh, it, it, it it's, it's the same way that you might see a, um, someone say, oh, I went to the Middle East and they were really in Kosovo. I just I don't really believe that my dad has the, uh, the fortitude to go over there and do that. Right. That's a good point. And it would not be far-fetched to think that they would use it as a propaganda tool. I'd like to see Malcolm Nance airlift himself, parachute into Mariupol. If Mariupol's in bad shape, Malcolm Nance, I'd like to see him five stories underground and see if he is able to turn things around for Ukraine in Mariupol. What do you think about that, Brave? I think that would, uh, Michael Nance, if he were to do that and take up that challenge, he would be a credit to his form of media <laughs> and the media organization that he represents. I think that he would. And uh, someone should lay some flowers for him. I wanted to raise the point that um, concerning the, the, the the, the the thing that came out from CNN saying that they that they can't that the, our government can't track um, the weapons uh, once they hit Ukraine is uh, fog of war. They just disappear. They have no way of tracking it. Um, and, and the and the way that, that it's covered, um, the, the way that it's covered as far as all the money that's going out, but no one has uh, drilled down to see exactly what dollar for dollar where are these these dollars going and how are they being spent and what that transaction even looks like. I know that. The idea is that it's going to Ukraine, and and I, I I've heard some say that well it goes to the contractors at like uh, Lockheed Martin and, and whatnot, and then it's basically us purchasing weapons for Ukraine. But some of the stuff that I've seen going over there is complete trash. Like I saw articles saying that that one one threes and five seven sevens APCs um, are were, were being sent over there. I was in when I was in the military in 1999. They had those nose of trash then, and they were on their way out. So I find it hard to believe that all these millions and billions of dollars are being sent to, are being spent on um, the the equipment that they say is being spent on. I would just really love to see some some journalist somewhere I don't know drill down and do a uh, investigation on where this money is actually going because I believe it's a circle. I can't say what I think it is a circle. Um, you know what I'm saying? I believe it's going in a circle, and the money's not actually leaving the room, and it's going to some pockets, probably Biden's pockets, and some of his family and friends, and Democrat Republicans as well. No, I think I think you, a good call, Brave, and good point there. I think the weapons there could be a financial motivation for some people behind the weapon shipments, and where they're ending up. Some of them are obviously ending up on the black market where they're going to be bought by non-Ukrainians and possibly, we'll see if any of them end up in Syria. I'm just saying, it's possible because they're ending up sold on the dark web and very dangerous. 202-521-1320. Let's go to Keith 
Keith, hi. What's on your mind? Hi. Well, I wanted to talk about uh, why the U.S. has uh, U.S. population has such a visceral response to uh, what Russia is doing in Ukraine, and uh, we want to go back to circa 1962, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. John Mersheimer, a uh, esteemed political scientist, gave a uh, at the University of Chicago, which is no liberal bastion to say the least. Uh, but he said that, uh, in essence, this is uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis analogy, uh, where in Cuba, uh, the satellites, U.S. satellites, um, were able to reveal that there were missiles there. And Kennedy, having the view that he believed that you had to understand your, your, uh, your uh, adversary by looking through his eyes or her eyes, and that by doing that, you could see the vantage point from how they see things. So based on that analysis through Kennedy, he simply said, look, we'll take the missiles out of Turkey if you take the missiles out of uh, Cuba. And that's what they did. We avoided a basic uh, confrontation, nuclear annihilation, vaporization, all of these things, because people were uh, wise enough and intelligent enough to think about it. And my friends all have knee-jerk responses. If I mention the word the Azov Battalion, they think I'm a conspiracy theorist. If I mention Georgia 2014, the invasion and setup of Saakashvili in the contested region, I believe it was the um, Osetia, I, I can't recall now. But in any event, uh, Mr. Um, Saakashvili was left high and dry. There were no reinforcements. And it was a similar um, situation. Georgia is like a bulwark, according to John Mersheimer, and Ukraine is a bulwark, like a seawall. And it, it's, it's so ridiculous. And Gore Vidal might have been right when he had his book, uh, the book he wrote called The United States of Amnesia. Uh, people can't find Ukraine on the map. Most Americans still haven't read at least one book in their entire life. And the psyops and the, uh, you know, um, all of the propaganda is unfairly um, against um, Russia and a population that doesn't have the wherewithal to unpack all this stuff. I just want to see what you would have to say or your other callers or your guests. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Well, see, I've said this before. The reason I was immediately saying I stand with Russia on this is because I've been talking about it on this show for about five years. Not this show. The shows I've been on the, this network because I've hosted a couple shows, but I've been talking about Ukraine. I've been talking about the Maidan. I've been talking about how we overthrew a democratically elected government. So a lot of people, when Putin said, hey, there's Nazis over there, they just had no experience of it. And this is especially true with people on the left, Democrats, but it's equally true with people on the right. When Glenn Beck started talking about Alexandra Shalupa, who I had pointed out years before, he started the narrative after 2014, and he said, well, the U.S. backed the people's will. It was not the people's will. It was a small group of people's will. The Medan coup was a small group, and it was backed by neo-Nazis. Now, I knew that, and I'd umpteen times confirmed it with guests and through independent research. But most people, when they came into it, there's a problem. You pointed out one problem. 
Americans have an ignorance of history and of world affairs, but just as bad, they have an arrogance about world history and public affairs. They think if they've read one article in the New York Times or one art, one story on Fox, they saw one Bill Browder appearance. They think they know about, oh yeah, Putin, he's the richest guy in the world. Why'd they say that? Because Browder lied about it. So they think they're an instant expert. And I find that as big a problem as the ignorance, the arrogance. They don't think that they can be taught anything on it. So you can't tell them nothing. And coming up next, a person who we love having on the show, author, cartoonist, bon vivant, Ted Rawl will be joining us next. We'll talk to him about the Assange thing, about the French elections, and about other geopolitical issues with Ted Rawl coming up on The Backstory. And we're back on The Backstory on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Now, I'm going to make a brief programming note about By Any Means Necessary, the show that preceded us. Rod, we listen to the end because we, when, when we call in, we usually listen to the last 10 minutes of By Any Means Necessary, just waiting for our show to start. Were you listening to By Any Means Necessary today? Yeah, they were talking about wrestling. And, uh, yeah, I thought, yeah, I thought Carmen Xavier was on for a second. He wasn't. But they were talking about professional wrestling, right? And Sean Blackman, who surprised me, like he's a Marvel fan, for instance. He's a very serious political person. But I, I love it when he talks to culture stuff because it always surprises me. I don't know why. But... Not only does Sean Blackman obviously know a lot about professional wrestling, but Jackie Lukeman showed that she knows a lot. Did that conversation surprise you at all? Uh, as a former wrestling fan, no, not really, because uh, you're talking about the 90s and the early 2000s when you don't have too many options. And you did you did have uh, like The Rock, uh, Ron Simmons, uh, Booker T and other people like that who, you know, were uh, prominent back black wrestlers. So it draws people in to see what, you know, their characters and whatnot. So I just give Carmine the heads up that usually by any means necessary would make Carmine burst a vein. Because, you know, it's a very, very leftist show as in socialist communists. But they were talking Pro wrestling, I think you would have enjoyed that segment. Do you think so, Rod? Oh, definitely. And uh, you know, it, like I said, it was it was uh, it was actually I was a little surprised, but then at the same time, I wasn't because I thought about. It. I was like, man, you know, if you think about it, back in the day in the '90s, before the internet and streaming, there's not too many options. And on certain nights, you know, you tune in and watch uh, 
people put on a show and it was a back in the 90s i thought that was one of the best eras for wrestling professional wrestling the one thing that was weird to me was and we'll get to ted Rawl in one second is that they expressed dismay that the rock is a republican and this is what i think about that if would have been better I don't think they would have expressed dismay if he was a Democrat. And they aren't Democrats. Sean and Jackie, you know, they're leftists of, of, of a serious kind. They hate Democrats. But I don't think they would have said, oh, like, like the Rock had cooties for being a Republican. Did you notice that? Um, I did. I don't think so. I think they were talking about when he joined because there was a there was clicks in the wrestling. I think they were talking about when he was a nation of domination. I don't yes. think I don't think he was. Uh, it was there was a polit- I don't think they were talking about politics. So uh, maybe you misheard, or maybe I didn't hear that part. So. Yeah, I know. Well, at one point they expressed dismay, and let me bring on Ted Rawl, frequent guest this show. We love having Ted on, author, cartoonist, and bon vivant. Ted, may I say? Bonjour. How you doing, Ted? Bonjour. I'm okay. How are you, Lee? I'm okay. So, are you dismayed when someone you like, let's say in pop culture, are you more dismayed when they're Republican than when they're Democrat? I used to be. Um, I used to have that vestigial, you know, I Democrat thing. And uh, and and I used to really, you know, it, it took a long time to go through the whole stages of, you know, 17 stages of uh, post uh, bipartisan grief uh, through sort of realizing that both parties are corporate and evil to realizing that really, truly, it doesn't make any difference. And in some ways, I now have more trouble with Democrats because, uh, you know, they're. They're frustrating because I feel like, you know, with they're closer to my side, maybe, but then they're not. And uh, so so therefore, you have to sort of just realize that really, truly, there's no difference. Um, I find Democrats are usually harder to talk to, uh, probably because we are sort of theoretically, ideologically closer together. But uh, with Republicans, there's like sort of more genuine curiosity like, what the hell are you thinking, Ted? Uh, whereas, and they, they actually want to know, but Democrats think they, they already have everything figured out and that uh, I'm just an extremist and not a realist. And to a lot of people on the left, and I, and I understand this because the perception issues you're talking about, but if somebody starts to, I saw something on Fox, that sounds worse to them than I saw something on MSNBC. But I could point out, even to people on the left, who was more right about Russiagate? More right. MSNBC was consistently wrong about it. Right? Yeah, no, that's true. Um, and I personally think that there's lots of stories that you could say that about. The Hunter Biden laptop, many others. Um, so there's, uh, you know, I, I like to say news should be oppositional. Media should be oppositional. When Democrats are in power, I watch Fox more. 
uh, when Republicans are in power, I watch MSNBC more. Yeah, and 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 it becomes difficult because, and I remember when I had this, uh, when I first talked to Andrew Breitbart on the phone, the first time I ever talked to him, I was a Democrat, and I wrote for Huffington Post, and uh, Andrew said something to me. He said, "There's more room to move on the right," and I said, "What? What are you talking about?" And he explained that there's more freedom of movement. There's more freedom of thought. You can have, you could be a Republican and be pro-choice, for instance, and you're not going to get kicked out of conversations. People accept that. You have all kinds of positions, whereas the Democrats tend to keep you in a very, very narrow set of opinions. And it stunned me. I, I, I didn't believe him at first. It took me a couple of years to go, you know what, he's right. But can you see, even, I don't know where you are in that, Ted, but if someone said to you, you have more freedom of thought as a Republican on the right side in right-wing media, what would your take be on that? Well, I've said things like that sort of analogously. Look, I'm not a Republican, so I can't say, uh, you know, from personal experience, what it's like to, for example, have like my friend Scott, who I do my podcast with, who's a, uh, you know, he's a libertarian Republican and he's uh, got a lot of unorthodox points of view, but he's a Republican. Um, I, I, you know, I don't have that experience, but I can say that as a left wing guy, there's a lot more tolerance and openness to what I have to say when I talk to uh, conservatives and right wing media. You know, I'm, I'm often in the Wall Street Journal uh, opinion section as a contributing uh, essayist uh, than there is on the left. I mean, you know, I can't if you don't have the the exact type of left of liberalism that is appropriate to, say, the nation or Mother Jones or the progressive or NPR, you are a heretic and you cannot be countenance. You certainly cannot critique your own side ever. Uh, you can never say, for example, uh, you know, you can't criticize President Biden or, you know, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, you see, you hear more, there's more internal dialogue uh, among Republicans. There's no question about that. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a little puzzling, but at first, but once, you know, if you're interested in finding out how things really are, as opposed to how you wish they were, you accept that. And, and that is, I've, I've accepted it. I, I observe it. I'm not really sure why, but it is true. Well, I think also there are many cases, let's take transgender athletes, that issue. It's thought it was a right-wing issue, but I think there's clearly a left-wing case to be made for it, that having born men compete in transgender athletics is anti-feminist and anti-woman. Now, I'm not arguing that that's the only position that's correct, but it would be a left-wing, it'd be a feminist case against transgender athletics. You see what I'm saying? And yes, I think uh, assuming that, I think what happens a lot of the time is that like liberals or Democrats will think that conservatives are saying things like that just in order to sort of get one over. They're not, they don't really care about women and they're just sort of saying that. Um, but 
uh, you know, I don't think that's true. And uh, I do see what you're saying there. No, and and I, I think, you know, I, I, when we talk to people from the Center for Immigration Studies, well, I point out that an open borders policy was once anathema to the left, and that if you're in favor of entitlements, uh, expanding free college or health care, you can't do that sustainably if you offer open borders, because people coming into the country would make it impossible to pay for it, and literally impossible. And I never hear, it's sometimes some of the positions that the establishment left takes, I don't know how they arrived at them. They just seem to have arrived at them. And this is a position you need to take. And if you don't take it, you're out of favor. Have you ever had that happen, Ted? Like, like so for instance, Assange. A support for Assange, there used to be plenty of support on the left. And then one day, around 2016, they decided that if you support Assange, you are a traitor to the left and you're a Republican. And it happened with no notice. Do you know what I'm talking about, Ted? Oh yeah, I, t I totally know what you're ha what you're talking about. Um, Julian Assange was a hero of the progressive left, and as far as I'm concerned, he still is. Uh, but he was definitely. Uh, but he's been he's been thrown over. He's been thrown overboard. Um, and uh, you know, I think it's because. Uh, I think the establishment liberal press decided to go after him, and and uh, he exposed them and their hypocrisy. No, that's that's exactly right. And even uh, papers that are supposedly on the left, like the Guardian, worked with Assange at one point, and they didn't have a problem with him then, yeah. obviously. And the Assange stories in the Guardian became people like Luke Harding published some of the worst stuff about Assange. Lies. I believe he was the one behind the lie that Paul Manafort met with Assange. If I remember correctly, Luke Harding is a is a very sloppy. He's a sloppy dude, uh, and I know it personally because I literally wrote the book on Ed Snowden, and uh, Luke Harding had written extensively about Snowden, and a lot of the stuff that he wrote about Snowden uh, when I dug into it and. You know, I, I worked with Snowden. Just wasn't true. Yeah, no, and and the problem becomes. I found an article. It was a good article by Luke Harding recently, and it's troubling because there was an article about Zelensky's money that showed up in Paradise Papers, and it was a pretty pretty good article, and it was documented and everything. But he is sloppy. Good point, Ted. Now let's talk about France. You are a dual citizen. And as we get closer to Sunday's second round of the election, Macron is has a sizable lead against Le Pen, 10 points or so. And that's a sizable lead. And also I saw protests, like big protests in France against Le Pen. Did you see that? What's going on there? Well, all eyes are on the debate tonight. Uh which I guess has already happened. 
um, because of the time difference, and I look forward to catching up with it. On, uh, on, on I'll stream it later. Um, but uh, you know, basically, Le Pen is is trying to catch. It. We have kind of a candidate in the form of Le Pen who's trying to be, characterize herself as more moderate, less extreme, not nativist, more nationalist, uh, and more patriotic. Uh, make herself more acceptable, more mainstream, in order to catch up to uh, a man who uh, should have everything going for him. A very able politician, very smart debater, uh, you know, in- incredibly charismatic, and uh, who has uh, control of the French parliament by an overwhelming number of seats, but is just happens to be despised by much of the French electorate because he ran as a centrist, moderate, Uh, A man neither of the left or the right who turned out to just be basically an old-fashioned conservative and a candidate of austerity. And austerity is the one thing the French are just sort of – France is sort of congenitally not in the mood ever for austerity. But these days, they are really not in the mood for American-style austerity. So so Le Pen is running uh, in a very self-disciplined way on uh, bread and butter issues, uh, cost of living uh, salaries, uh, wait, right, the un- unemployment rate, and so on. Um, and so that's made her you know, a real serious contender, although I think if the election were held this second, uh, it, would, it would go probably to Macron. But that's far from certain. Uh, a lot of lefties who voted for Jean-Luc Mélenchon, for example, uh, the lefty, might decide to sit on their hands uh, on on the grounds that the two uh, remaining candidates are so similar that it's not really going to make much difference, and uh, so they just won't turn out for either one. That would benefit Le Pen, and could uh, you know could cause an upset. Is it possible that some of those people who came up for the protests aren't going to vote for Macron? That there were more protesters than there were potential Macron voters. Is that possible? Well, you know, we saw those Bernie Sanders rallies, right? Um, yeah, it's totally possible. Um, you know, people sometimes protest and don't vote. And a lot of protesters uh, don't care for either one of these candidates. I mean, the irony of this system is, with the runoff, is that the top two uh, vote getters uh, go forward. And I guess the theory is that they're the most popular candidates. But when you have, uh, I think it was uh, 16 or 12 uh, major candidates in the first round, um, what you really end up with is a situation where very few people are really happy. Um, you know, another way to look th- look at this is most people who are going to vote uh, this weekend in France did not vote for either of these two candidates, uh, this man or this woman, in the first round. So this is most people are not happy. Now, let me ask you, since you are a dual citizen, what is about French culture? What do you think it is about the French that they're more, Michael Moore has pointed this out. The French are willing to protest more They on a wider variety of issues than Americans. What is it about the culture in France that is more willing to protest? Well, I think that's generally true about Europeans in, in, in general. But I think the thing is, the French have had not just one major but they've had a lot of revolutions, a lot of a lot of overthrows, a lot of coups that people here don't know about. Um, and the point is, protests work there. Uh, you know, you you try to raise the the, the college tuition in France by a thousand dollars a year, 
And, you know, cities burn. Uh, people, people are, the presidents are terrified of, of protest movements and they respond. So with the French, they know there's power in it. Uh, I think Americans feel like it's, they feel impotent. You know, think about the run up to the invasion of Iraq where there were hundreds of thousands of Americans marching in the streets of major cities. And granted, that was not a sustained movement. It was sort of a, a, a fun thing to do for a few weekends. And then people saw that Bush was going to invade anyway, and they gave up. I think we give up too quickly, and we don't insist on results. And our street, our street protests don't feel dangerous to the powers that be. I mean, you know, the mere fact that we, we will take buses to Washington on Saturdays and Sundays, when all the people we're trying to yell at aren't even in these offices that are all empty. And we all swear, swear, swear that it's going to be totally 1,000% peaceful. And uh, if anybody in our own ranks is not peaceful, we're going to self-discipline them. I mean, that might all sound like nice and responsible, but protests don't really work unless they're a little dangerous, as we saw with Black Lives Matter. They, those, some of those protests were a little dangerous, and they got some results in the places where they felt that way. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too because I think also how much the what I'm not going to try to say in French because my pronunciation as is probably bad on a good day by which I mean I'm speaking normally, but equality, liberty, what is the French slogan? Yeah, equality, what? fraternity. Liberty, liberty, equality, fraternity. Now, how seriously, it seems like the French take that slogan and all three parts of it very seriously, don't they? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's a national religion there. Now, what does fraternity mean in this context? Uh, it's sort of, it means solidarity. Um, it's sort of the, you know, like we all look out for each other. So, for example, in the context of trade unionism, if the teachers go on strike, the police go on strike, the rail workers go on strike, so do the mailmen, so do the subway conductors, everybody, the whole country goes on strike. That's fraternity. It's like all for, you know, it's like the three musketeers, one for all, all for one. And maybe I'm missing something in history here, but some of this history goes back to the 18th century when France was you know, protesting against monarchy in French, I would say the English, I, I was thinking about this the other day, the English never had that kind of protest against their own monarchy. The protest happened here in the United States where we threw off the king and queen. But that never happened in England, as far as I know. And net, the closest, and, and is, France, the closest is Oliver Cromwell. Yeah, right. But but it's it's that's not close to Marie Antoinette. You know what I'm saying? It's a different. It's qualitatively yeah. different. They they took it really seriously, and in North American, it tends to exhibit itself for the most part in Canada, because that fighting spirit, that fighting spirit of. Rebelling against the monarchy, you see the same thing in Bastille Day. I mean, that, that's French, but people in Montreal, the French up in Montreal, French Canadians, seem to take that 
don't you see that fighting spirit more in, in Montreal than other parts of the country? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was there for what they called uh, the Red Square tic- uh, protests. Uh, I guess that was about nine years ago, where the students in uh, Montreal rose up, uh, in, sort of inspired by Occupy Wall Street. Uh, but it was their own thing, and uh, it was a big left-wing movement. Everybody was out in the streets banging their pots and pans and raising hell. And you, every you know, every apartment building had people draping red flags out of their windows. And yeah, Montreal is restless. And I mean, I th- I think one important distinction, um, you know, is Americans have never had a, a real revolution. You know, the American Revolution was really an independence struggle from Britain, but not a Marxist revolution in which one class, uh, one socioeconomic class was overthrown and replaced by a new one. Uh, that's what happened in France, China, Russia. Uh, we, you know, we, we just haven't done that here. So there's not, I don't think radicalism is really, uh, left-wing radicalism is baked into the American mindset. No, no, that's a good point. And thanks for the service and said good conversation. Um, let me ask you, Finally, something I, I think is true. With the economic sanctions by the United States clearly failing, they're not admitting it. Biden's not saying these sanctions backfired in the U.S. I would say Russia and China, the U.S.'s turn as a global hegemon seems over. The U.S. is not admitting it yet, but I don't think there's any way because the U.S. overplayed its hand with the sanctions. What, do you think that writing is on the wall, that the U.S. days as a global hegemon, they're essentially a dead man walking? I think we are going to a, a multipolar uh, future, which is, I think, probably going to make the world a safer uh, place in general, um, certainly militarily. Uh, the U.S. I think. Look, the thing is about the U.S. You can't really count them out completely because they're resilient, they're highly aggressive, very militaristic, and and uh, you know they they have a history of being counted out and then coming back and taking advantages of uh, and under sabotaging other their rivals. So that could happen, but right now it certainly looks like the United States has certainly. I don't know if, I mean, certainly they did overplay their hands with the sanctions and they are shooting themselves in the foot economically. The question is, can they recover? I mean, maybe, but they can't really recover from many more mistakes like that. And we make, we're making a lot of mistakes. Uh, You know, we're not taking care of our infrastructure. We're not taking care of our our citizens with healthcare, uh, homeless, you know, we have an eviction crisis. So, um, you know, it does seem like, you know, all the, to me, I'd say like, it's not a hundred percent, but it doesn't look good for the U.S. Right. Or it does look good, depending upon your view. You know what I'm saying? You were implying that. <laughs> I do. I do you know think what you it's mean. for the better. And I agree with you. Ted, great conversation as usual. Ted Rall, thank you. The website is com to get all your Ted Wall swag. Thanks to Ted Rall. Thanks to Daniel Czar, and thanks to all our callers, Ingrid, Tarif, Brave, Keith. Great phone calls today. We'll be back tomorrow on the Best Damn Radio Show, hosted by someone who speaks like a gimp. 
the backstory. 